post-traumatic brain injury recovery. All right, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday speaker meeting. I am really happy to have Dr. Dan Gardner here with us this morning. I don't know if Dr. Gardner likes when I say this, but I describe him as the brain injury guru in San Diego. He has been in the brain injury community for a long time. He's got such a high level of expertise, a deep level of expertise in the brain injury world. Dr. Gardner is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist who specializes in working with brain injury survivors. He's going to be talking a bit today about the idea of why do I feel this way after a TBI and giving us maybe a different framework for, you know, how to understand brain injury. And so with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Gardner here. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so hey, much. Thanks. thanks, Kurt, for the kind introduction and giving me the opportunity to speak. I enjoy that. I hope everybody's doing the best they can to meet the challenges of the pandemic and what else we're dealing with. So today I want to address a number of questions that are important to me and most of the people I work with. I want to talk about why I feel this way after a brain injury. I also want to talk about why do similar brain injuries cause different problems? So if two people get hit in the head with a soccer ball at the same speed, why is the outcome different, perhaps very different for each person? I want to talk about diagnosis, the importance of making a diagnosis before we start a treatment. Now, when I gave this talk a couple of years ago, I asked, why is it important? And one of the attendees today, Chuck, raised his hand and said, gee, when he had a stroke, when he went to the ER, the doctors thought he was drunk. And so obviously there's a big difference between a stroke and the diagnosis of intoxication and the treatment that follows is quite different. The other thing I want to talk about is perspective, which is most helpful for me in understanding traumatic brain injury. And that's the biological, psychological, and social perspective. It's a broad, comprehensive one that helps me to take as much as possible into account and not leave out important issues that can be influencing the outcome of the manifestations of the brain injury. For example, the biological part, let's say somebody has a headache and the headache gets worse. Well, is it because you know, a collection of in the brain, they have a pneumonia and a urinary tract infection? Is it because they had an argument with their spouse and they're having a headache? So we want to look at a broad set of areas, try to understand what's going on, and then, of course, how to intervene. The last thing I want to talk about is finding meaning and purpose in recovery from brain injury. And I like to look at that as how can I help myself and how can I help others? So the goal here, as in any medical condition, is a well-thought-out diagnosis, well-thought-out, not jumping quickly to a conclusion because of some time pressure or some bias that I, as a treater, have. A good understanding of the medical condition in the context of the whole person's life and then come up with customized and tailored treatment to that individual, not a one-size-fits-all approach. That's our goal. Now, is that sometimes idealistic and unrealistic? Maybe so because of patient resources, time, and so on, but that would be the gold standard. So I'm talking about biases and pressures. That's a problem. So what I mean by that, well, what if you see your healthcare provider and because he or she works in a certain system, there are productivity demands. And so you don't have more than 20 minutes to see a new patient. That's a real challenge. 
what if that's biased? Now, I'm very psychologically oriented, although I've had a good background in internal medicine. But I'll tell you a big mistake that I made early on in my career. Now, excuse me, some of you have heard this story multiple times, but I like to tell it to remind myself not to have blinders on and take too narrow an approach when I deal with a new patient. My first week of internal medicine internship, and I'm very interested in the psychological aspects of illness. So me and my team are assigned a new admission to the hospital, 50-year-old man who'd been on a vacation the previous weekend with his lover, and there was an argument and they broke up. Right after that, he's admitted to the hospital and his chief complaint is progressive weakness in his lower extremities. And when we interviewed him, he also had some breathy presentation and I consider that to be him a bit overly dramatic. Physical exam showed no objective findings. So I, being so psychologically oriented, very proudly wrote in the chart, I think the diagnosis is hysterical conversion disorder. And I was so confident and I, and I thought, oh, I'm going to impress my classmates, I'm going to impress my attending physicians, my teachers. That's the frame of mind I was in when I left that evening. So the next morning, I'm walking down the hall, and at the other end of the hall, there's a swarm of medical personnel that's around this patient's bed that was on wheels, and they're pushing the bed furiously towards the intensive care unit, and they're also using a respirator bag to breathe for him. I was in shock. So, and I found out either later that day or the next day that the diagnosis was not, was not hysterical conversion reaction. What was it? It was polio. Polio. He's one of the few people who'd never had the polio vaccine. That made such a big impression on me right then and there. Do not blinders on it. If all you have is a hammer, then everything's a nail. That's not the way to practice medicine. Later that year, I made another mistake. Somebody came into the clinic, middle-aged man complaining of pain in his lower back. And he was telling me about an argument he just had with his son. So I write in the chart, the back pain is because his son is a pain in the back. Here I am, cute formulation. So then I look at the x-rays and I see a big bone spur that's likely pressing on some nerve. Again, it was a good lesson for me early on. I'll talk a little more about some examples of the two conclusions. Thinking about making the diagnosis in the context of who that person is. Each of us is unique, we're all unique. That explains why two people get hit with a soccer ball, my other example, or two people have a slip and fall, they're about the same height and, and weight, why may the outcome be very different? Well, let's think about that. So how is a person unique? Let's look at the physical status. When you're doing an evaluation, look at the physical status. The age, you think somebody who's 80 is gonna be as resilient as somebody who's 18? No. What about the medications they might be taking? Would that make them more or less vulnerable? Are there side effects that, that come into play? What about other conditions they might have? High blood pressure, high blood sugar, and so on and so forth. Those are all important to take into account. The other thing is current relationships. What if she has a brain injury and they're an adolescent? They're trying to form an identity, not sure who they really are, where they're going in life, what their occupation is. That's, that's adolescence versus somebody who's solidly in a relationship either married or in a, in a committed relationship, and they have a solid career, do you think they're gonna be a little more resilient to an injury? What about life experiences? So I'm talking about early life experiences. How were we parented? 
did our parents treat us respectfully? And was there a trusting relationship? And when I say respectfully, was there a lack of, of neglect? Was there a lack of abuse? Were we able to trust authority figures? If there were some problems there, some bumps in the road, then an injury like a brain injury is going to cause more distress and it'd be harder for us to adapt to. The other thing is coping style, a personality style or coping style. I like to define that as an habitual way of relating to our own emotions and a habitual way of relating to other people. For example, when we encounter distressing feelings like an injury and all the losses and frustration and disappointment that follow injury, what's our characteristic way of handling distress? Well, let's say we're a very orderly, tidy, punctual person. I remember having a patient who was an engineer and he didn't feel much in control of his life after the injury and he would make charts every day and that was his way of, of having a modicum of control in his life or another personality style would be somebody who doesn't have self-confidence and looks for an expert outside of him to just guide him and tell him what to do so again that's another solution find the right expert and listen to that advice and take it as gospel and there are other styles that i have time to get into in this talk today About the concept of protective barrier that was coined by a neuropsychologist named Thomas Kay in the early 90s to say when a force hits us, the, the way we respond to that force, the way the problems will manifest and the degree of resilience has to do with this protective barrier. And the protective barrier has three major components. So there's a force hitting the protective barrier like the soccer ball is going to be headed by this player. Or another metaphor would be a tornado. There's a tornado, and which of these houses do you think would be most resilient to the force of this tornado? This straw house here? This wooden house here? Or this house made of stone? So the components of the protective barrier, the first is the biological component. They're all important. Depending on the unique situation, one may be much more important than the other. But again, it's important to look at all of these areas if we have the time and resource to do that. So biological, the status and structure of the brain and the function of the brain. Is there any swelling in the brain? Is there any fluid collection? Any blood in the brain? Obviously, we want to find out if something's easily correctable. Are there seizures after the injury? If that's true, have they been evaluated and adequately treated? What's the age? Again, an eight-year-old is going to be far more resilient than an 80-year-old. Prescription drugs, what are those drugs? How are they helping and how might they be holding us back? Did somebody review the list of meds that the brain injury survivor is on to make sure that they're getting the optimal benefits and not causing any problems? For example, a lack of alertness or slowed thinking or forgetfulness or distractibility because we probably all know that there are certain meds that have those particular side effects. Previous concussions, the football players who get multiple concussions and how that will cause injury and sometimes result in chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Fluid collections, we talked about that. Now, is somebody taking alcohol and drugs? That's one way of coping with stress. The other thing is hormonal imbalances and metabolic imbalances. The pituitary gland is at the base of the brain. What if that's jostled and shaken up and, and then hormone production of the body is off balance? 
We could get a low growth hormone, which could cause fatigue, slowness, being tired. We could get a low thyroid hormone that could lead to the same. It could lead to depression. Now, what about the psychological factors? Past experiences and personality style, we talked a little about that. I'm thinking of a case where somebody was very embarrassed about emotional ability. At times, they couldn't control their emotions. They would just flood right out, and they would laugh, they would cry. It was very embarrassing. And then I came to understand, knowing a little about his background, why he was so upset. First of all, it's a so upsetting to most of us, but he was more upset than most because this ability after his brain age reminded him when he was in grade school, he had had an accident and wet his pants in school and he was shamed by the others in school. It was really humiliating for him. Again, personality style. How important is it for us to be independent and self-sufficient? And how easy is it for us to ask for help and accept help? Those things really respond to brain injury. And I'll elaborate as we go on here. Ecological resources. So let me ask you a question. We have had a year of pandemic, a year of disruption and uncertainty, and now eagerness to get a vaccine and wondering with the storms in Texas and in the Southwest, is the vaccine going to be delayed? When are we going to get it? When is there going to be herd immunity? When is it going to be safe? Everybody has this anxiety, I will tell you. Nobody I've talked to doesn't mention it. Do you think that that is not taking some energy from us and, and making it more of a challenge to deal with chronic medical conditions? I, I think it is. Now, social. What about social connections? Our family connections, coworkers, groups, friends, really, really helpful to make us feel we're connected, we've got a community, we're not alone. We got somebody to share our concerns with, our thoughts, our good humor with, our laughter. And then what other organizations? Religious organizations, work, academic, special interest groups. Depending on the presence or absence, it may make it more difficult or less difficult to manage these problems. So anybody with a brain injury has a degree of the three things here depending on the severity of the brain injury. Okay, dependency, what do I mean by that? Well, what if I can't walk well? I may need somebody to help me transfer. What if I can't feed myself? What if I am forgetful? I have to depend on maybe my iPhone or a notebook or something. So I'm not as self-sufficient as I used to be. What about loss of control? I was talking about the man who lost control of his emotions. Or what if we have a bladder, an incontinence?
family going to stick with us? How are they going to feel about us? All this depression, anxiety. What about pain? Like in Tom's case, the back pain, the surgical complications. And what about med side effects? So what I'm saying is when we look at these symptoms, particularly the cognitive symptoms, we want to make sure 